May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Today is a big day. There's a lot going on. It's the last Sunday in ordinary time. Next Sunday, Advent starts, which means the countdown for Christmas will begin. It's also the last Sunday we have with Luke. Next Sunday, we start with Matthew. And we have a year with Matthew. We have this wonderfully British Anglican name for the Sunday Stir Up Sunday, where I'm supposed to stir you up and you're supposed to go home and stir up your Christmas pudding ready for Christmas Day. It's also Christ and All Creation Sunday, Aotearoa Sunday, and Christ the King or the Reign of Christ Sunday. So there's a lot to choose from, a lot to cover in one little sermon. So I thought I'd start by looking at Christ the King. It's a really important phrase. It kind of is implicit in a lot we do and a lot we think about Christ and God. Christ the King. And it also has the potential to deeply mislead us, to pull us in directions that are at odds with the gospel portrayal of Jesus. So, to get us going, a little brainstorming exercise. What words or images come to mind when you hear the word king, or what words come out of your experience of kingship? So... You've got 10 seconds to turn to your neighbour and to just quickly brainstorm words or images that come to mind when you hear the word king. Where are you going? Okay, so what'd you come up with? What words? Yes. Service. Alright. King serves the people. It's a good notion. What other words? Ruler, Lord. Diversity. Lots coming out from around here. Saviour, Messiah. Yep. images that come in there, service of the people, saviour, actually lots of kings have styled themselves as saviour, despot historically is probably the most accurate one, Uh, historically servant of the people, has not been high on their agenda, Uh, although there has been something that uh, some theologians would suggest Christianity has introduced into the whole thinking about Leadership. My terms were despot, 
but thinking about our own experience of kingship, distant, powerless, scandal, and then my Republican leanings came through, irrelevant. It's not an easy concept, the concept of king. There are such a wide range of images and understandings that 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 one word holds. And all of those are brought to our understanding of Christ the King. Whether we realise it or not, whether we like it or not, we bring those experiences and understanding to that term, Christ the King. And we can see that in the kind of images that Christ the King elicits when you put in Christ the King in Google. So here's a few of them. These are the ones at the top of the list. There's one more. So very regal, very imperial, and in fact very distant. Those are the kind of kings that are very distant from the people. Maybe not quite as distant as the Chinese emperors who built themselves, well, the, the latter Chinese emperors who built a city and then they built their own city, the forbidden city within that, and hardly ever went out of that. But even so, this model of kingship was well removed from the people. The reality is we understand Jesus Christ and his ministry using these images. These images shape our understanding of who Christ the King is. And when we do that, we miss the really radical thing that the Gospel writers thought that Jesus was on about. We miss that they understood Jesus came among us to remind us of who God is. That through the life and teaching and actions and death of Jesus, we are shown the nature of God. And all of that is affirmed by the resurrection. And too often we jump to the resurrection, this kind of picture, and say, this is what the Jesus story is all about. And we miss that actually that is an affirmation of everything that went on beforehand. That's not the point. That affirms the point. The point comes before that. That's the point. That window. And in light of all of that, we are reminded who we are as the people of Christ the King. Or to put that another way, instead of letting the gospel portrayal of Jesus shape and inform our understanding of who God is, which is why the Gospels was written, written so that we might know who God is, we use our ideas of who God is and we fit Jesus into that box. And we say, well, that's God is like this and Jesus is God, so that must be what Jesus was on about. But actually the gospel writers were flipping that around and said, actually, this is what God is like. You have to let go of so many of those regal and imperial images of God. 
This, the life, the teachings, the actions, the death of Jesus, that's what encapsulates the heart of God. When we use our ideas of what God should be like, and we fit Jesus into those, we can get led very astray. And we had a great example of that in the last week, where the pseudo-bishop Brian Tamaki came out with a whole lot of things which actually come out of his idea of, this is God, Jesus fits into that box, this is how it all works. Which I would say were not only disgusting and harmful and hurtful, but heretical. So far removed from what the Gospel is about. Well, we have spent a year hearing Luke's betrayal of Jesus, so we're all experts now in what Luke thinks the kingship of Christ is all about. So, how would you say Luke describes Jesus' kingship, given your year of walking with Luke? I invite you to turn around and talk to your neighbour for a minute about that. How do you think Luke describes the kingship of Jesus, having spent a year listening to his gospel? Where you go. All right. Ignoring what's in the pew sheet. Some naughty How would you say Luke would describe Jesus' nature? Service. Service. Loving. Loving. Compassion. Sorry? Compassion. Compassion. Yep. Healing. Healing. Healing people, and I would say healing communities. Because actually, we we kind of individualize everything, but every time he heals someone, he restores that person to their community. And he is healing the community at the same time. So it wasn't just about individuals. Our individual world misses that. Reconciliation, yep, with each other and with God. Empowering. Empowering. Absolutely. So he empowered other people to go out. And to be healers, exactly. So all of those are descriptions of Jesus the King. And while there have been kings through history that fitted some of those descriptors, that raft of words actually don't fit the image that's on the screen particularly easily. Because a whole lot of other images come in there as well. The Sunday, this Sunday, we heard on Christ the King Sunday, we're given the crucifixion story. And that's not an accident. That wasn't the lectionary writers having a wee blip and just thinking where they should finish the year off with that story. It was a deliberate choice. It makes no sense to the traditional understandings of kingship because we would never picture a king crucified. That kind of king is a failure as the images on the internet show. But despite that, 
That is exactly, the crucifixion is exactly the moment in the Gospels that Christ is declared King. When he is lifted in glory, as John says. That is, kingship is announced on the cross, not the resurrection, on the cross. So what then can we take out of today's reading that might help us further understand that kingship or reign of Christ? Well, the first thing to note is that Jesus doesn't fight back. Which other king in history doesn't fight back? History is littered with kings who fought back or fought to get what they thought was their own. In English history, in the year 1066, Three men of Danish descent, English don't like to hear that, but they were all of Danish descent, all descended from King Canute, fought it out over who would be King of England. Harold Godwinson, Harold Hadrada, and William the Bastard. And William the Bastard won and changed his name to William the Conqueror. She thought all round was a much better name. But in the end, that's how kings operate. They fight for what they think is theirs. Jesus did not fight back. He's crucified. Now we miss what's involved in that. The horror of it and the meaning of it. It just becomes a death. But in the Roman world, when you were crucified, you were declared by the Roman Emperor, the King of all kings, Lord of all. All those phrases we apply to Jesus, they are Roman imperial language that Paul just kind of flipped over onto Jesus. Highly subversive. That King of Kings declares that that person hanging on the cross and his message is meaningless and powerlessness and powerless and should be ignored. It is of no importance. It is a fraud and this is what it deserves. Best forgotten by everyone. And yet, that is the moment the Gospel writer said Jesus became king. By the standards of the imperial world, he was a failure. Not a king in any way that anyone understood kingship to be about. Which is why we keep flipping to the resurrection. Because then all the normal images and the normal ideas of kingship are restored. But actually the crucifixion is the point of kingship. It's why we keep depicting Christ using imperial images like the one on the screen. Jesus wasn't usurping Caesar. Jesus was offering a whole new way of understanding kingship based on, as you have said, servanthood rather than power. The third thing he does is that he forgives. In this story, everyone Now, most of your Bibles will have brackets around that that phrase, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, because it's not in all the old manuscripts. A lot of the old manuscripts don't have that phrase at this point. But some of them do, and it's still in our Bibles. 
And the really interesting thing about that is that no one repents, no one shows any remorse for what they're doing, and Jesus still forgives them. It is not how we think forgiveness works. If you say you're sorry, I'll forgive you. And we apply that to God. But actually, in the gospel stories, Jesus kept forgiving people, even people who never said sorry, even people who never repented. He just forgave them. Because in the end, the message was, God forgives us. We are forgiven whether we want it or not. When we said the confession this morning and I declared the absolution, you weren't forgiven because you confessed and I declared the absolution. You were already forgiven. The understanding is by doing that, we actually grasp the fact that we are already forgiven. We let go of those things that hinder our lives. But you're already forgiven. You are no more forgiven because we went through that. And the last thing is that Jesus brings the one condemned with him into paradise. They were condemned. They were outcasts. They were pushed beyond the boundaries. These people are of no account. And Jesus said, you are of account. You are important. You belong. And in fact, Jesus did that all through his ministry to people who had repeatedly been told were not important, did not belong. God did not care for them. Jesus' message was, you do belong. God does care for you. You are part of this community. Which is radical. Because he kept redefining what God's community looked like. So I would suggest that there is a word missing in this title, Christ the King, and that word is crucified. Because that word changes everything. Today we affirm our desire to be shaped by our crucified King. We affirm our desire for our lives to be based on this kingship. And we affirm our desire to demonstrate this kingship with our lives. More than that, we affirm our desire that how we operate demonstrates this model of kingship. How we lead should demonstrate this model of kingship. Our expectations of leaders should demonstrate this model of kingship. But it's fair to say that too often our models of leadership have had very little to do with the model Jesus offers us. Much more often the church has operated in the same model as the rest of society, which has more to do with imperial models of leadership. Where leadership was based in an imperial person or a ruling class, which at its best involved the clergy, but never the laity. Where leadership far too often was more about obtaining and keeping power and control. Those games still continue in our church today. Where it was about maintaining the status quo, rather than the radical vision of society offered in the Gospels and Paul. I recently read a history of the papacy 
And what was really interesting was how, and I have no idea what the Archbishop of Canterbury and other church leaders were doing, but at the end of the First World War, we kind of think the world during the First World War was kind of like our world, but the concept of countries and democratically elected governments, that was not a thing happening in Europe. It was about empires and kings. And at the end of the First World War, those empires shattered on the whole. And suddenly there was this thing called democracy. Even in Britain they had to come across democracy. They had to give votes to the working man and to woman. It was. It was a shocking thing. And the papacy had to grapple with, does democracy fit with God's way? And their answer was, no. They could not get their heads around it. And it took them until the 1950s, until they could embrace democracy as a legitimate form of government. It was new. And that's been the story of the church. We have struggled. And we have been the bastions of the status quo. And that has led to the church too often becoming bastions of sexual abuse and misogyny and homophobia, implicit in the destruction of indigenous cultures around the world and the ongoing destruction of our planet, all because we keep having the wrong images of Christ the King. And we see that today when we see the continued support of conservative evangelicals supporting Donald Trump and his list of appalling policies. Policies which are at odds with the gospel, with anything that Jesus was on about, and I would say anything that Paul was on about. They only fit an imperial model of kingship. That's all very depressing. I hope I've stirred you up. That is the point of today. But, next. Next, yeah. There have also been many through the last 2,000 years who have embraced the model of Christ, the crucified king. So within my own tradition, the Franciscan tradition, there's Francis and Claire and Elizabeth of Hungary, and I could list many others, whose lives were shaped by Christ the crucified king. That is who Francis followed. Not an imperial model. And that shaped how he lived his life, what he expected of himself as a leader, what he expected of other leaders in the order, but also what he expected of leaders in the church and in his society. There have also been many others. The Celtic saints that are the foundation of our church, the Anglican Church. And in this last week we remembered one of my personal favourite saints, Hilda of Whitby, who, as a woman, ran a monastery of men and women in the Celtic tradition and held the famous, although many of you may not have ever heard it, heard of it, Synod of Whitby in the 600s, which was between the Celtic Church and the Roman Church where they worked out which tradition they would follow in Britain. The Celtic tradition 
or the Roman tradition. They were very different. The Celtic tradition was much more in line with the Orthodox traditions of, of the East. And at the end of that synod, they decided to follow the Roman tradition. Now, Hilda, as a Celt, supported the Celtic tradition. But she called a meeting where people could gather, where they could make up their minds, and she supported that decision, even though it broke her heart. And she continued to be a faithful and fearless leader in that church until her death. So on Thursday we remembered Hilda of Whitby. You probably know of many others. They are the ones that need to inspire us. That's why I think the saints are important. They are the ones that actually hold the gospel. They are the ones that are shaped by the images and the models of leadership that the gospel provides. So today, as we finish our year with Luke, we are invited to join these people. As we, in, as we enter our new liturgical year, we are invited to let go of models of leadership and kingship which are shaped too often by imperial models, and instead embrace a model given to us by a crucified king and all that that offers, to allow that to shape our lives, but also to shape our expectations of those who lead us, of ourselves, both within the church and in our wider society. As we enter into Advent, may we hold on to the image of Christ the crucified King, and may that be the image we walk with as we approach Christmas.